0: We're reading tonight from Revelation chapter 21, Revelation 21, we'll read together the first eight verses, let's hear God's word, for those online the words will come up on screen, Revelation chapter 21 verse 1. The beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Amen. We know the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of his own precious and infallible word. My text tonight is taken from Revelation chapter 21 and verse 4. And I want us to think of the words neither sorrow. You see, this is the third message on the subject, the no mores of heaven. And here's another thing that is definitely not found in heaven, neither sorrow. That literally means no more sorrow. And I asked myself the question as I looked at those two words, why is there no more sorrow in heaven? And I was thinking, of course, of the fact that we live in a beautiful world. A world that has fallen into a state of sin and misery. And yet this world is a very beautiful place. Let's think of the most beautiful places in the world that you could visit. Here's the top of the list. The Giant's Causeway in North Antrim. Sure there's no greater place than the North Antrim coast and the young people are looking forward in the month of August to go in there. Think of the fairy pools on the Isle of Skye in Scotland. If you're looking visit to visit the Scotland, go to the Isle of Skye, visit the fairy pools. What about the Grand Canyon and National Park in the United States of America? What about Milford Sound in New Zealand? What about the Amazon rainforest that um, Brother Bill Woods has experienced and Pastor Victor Maxwell mentioned here last Sunday evening? What about the pyramids in Giza? Wonderful construction in the land of. What about the Taj Mahal in India? What about Mount Fuai in Japan? Or Machu Pinchu in Peru or the Victorian Falls in Zimbabwe in Africa. Or what about Old Jerusalem in the land of Israel? I've been there, blown away as I thought of that ancient city. What about Antelope Canyon in the USA? You see, you can visit any of these places. And I want to tell you all of them. They're spectacular. They're breathtaking. When you would be there, you'd be thinking of your friends, you'd be looking for the postcard. Wish you were here. Now, any of these one places, and all of them combined, they peel into the shadow, they peel into insignificance in comparing to the glories of heaven. What is heaven really like? I, I was sitting in the we study in the bedroom where, where Rose has me, and I was thinking last night of the death and burial of our dear friend, James Lowe. I I was thinking of him at 11.20 because that's the very moment he died. I sent out a wee text to the family. One week in heaven tonight. And you know, I was thinking if James Lowe could send us a message, maybe a postcard, if he could get a message out of glory, what would it be? Well, surely it would be this. I wish you were here. I wish you could see this. This is beyond our wildest dream and imagination. You see, the, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians uh, and in uh, chapter um, uh, 2 uh, and in the verse 9, listen to the word of God. This is what it says. But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them, that love, Heaven is a place of no mores. No more sea. No more death. No more sorrow. And one of the reasons it's beautiful and spectacular, so different from earth, is there's no more sorrow. That's what we're going to think about, right? We have 20 minutes. The reality of sorrow has been removed. That's the first point. When it says neither sorrow, learn this. The reality of sorrow has been removed. There's hundred and one, sorry, 108 references in the Bible to the word sorrow. That's a lot. What is sorrow? The, the biblical definition is this. It means an uneasiness or pain of mind which is produced by the loss of something good, produced by a frustrated hope, produced by the loss of happiness, produced by the ability to grieve. Now, that's a very good working definition of what sorrow is. And every time it's used in the Bible, 108 references from the first reference, Genesis 3.16, to the last reference, Revelation 21 and 4, that's the meaning that we should be thinking about. An uneasiness or pain of mind which is produced by the loss of something good Produced by a frustrated hope, produced by the loss of happiness, or produced by the ability to grieve. You see, why is there 108 references to sorrow in the Bible? If that's the true meaning and concept and experience of sorrow, then why is it mentioned 108 times? I already told you the first reference is Genesis 3 and verse 16. Listen to these words. And unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children, and thy sorrow shall be to thine, and thy desire shall be to thine husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is it the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. You see, this sorrow, this multiplication of sorrow to the woman in childbirth, and there's two mentions of sorrow here, Genesis 3.16, Genesis 3.17. The very first mention of it and the second mention of it is in connection with sin. You see, sorrow is the result of sin. It was part of God's punishment to, to Adam and Eve. They both had died spiritually. They both had became sinners by nature. They were also now sinners by practice. And, and as a result of their fall into a state of sin and misery, God said to the woman, your sorrow will be multiplied in childbirth. And some of you who have given birth to children, the woman folk, know the pain of childbirth. And not only that, experience a a time of pain and anguish and, and crying out. But to Adam, the ground was to be cursed. And he was to eat his bread by the sweat of his brow. And he would have sorrow even in the labor of the ground. And to me, that's a messenger. Sorrow has come into our world due to sin and the fall into sin. This biblical meaning... This applies in the world because of sin. All the sorrow in the world, from the first mention of sorrow to the last, is for a rich variety of reasons, can be all traced back to this ultimate cause, to the fall into sin. You see, in the journey of life, every one of us, saint or sinner, is going to know and experience sorrow. Man that is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble as the sparks fly upward. And that trouble will bring sorrow into the heart of mind. It will be produced by a loss of something good. There'll be a frustrated hope along the way. There'll be a loss of happiness. There'll, there'll be the, the experience of grief. And that will bring sorrow to your heart and mind. Turn over there to John's Gospel. Uh, look with me for a few minutes at um, John chapter 16. The Lord Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's already said to them, verse 17, then some of his disciples among themselves, what is this that he saith unto us a little while and ye shall not see me? And again, a little while ye shall see me and because I go to the Father. And, And they said, therefore, what is this that he saith a little while? We cannot tell what he saith. You see, Here's the eve of the crucifixion. And the Lord Jesus knows their fears and doubts. And he has reformed them. In a little while, you'll not see me. And they're wondering, what on earth does that mean? Where's he going? And and then again, in a little while, you will see me. So he's going to go away somewhere and he's going to come back again. What does this all mean? And they're questioning. And here's the, the sorrow, not of sin, but here's the sorrow of saints. A little while. You will not see me is a reference to his death and crucifixion on the cross. And then a little while ye shall see me, I believe, is a reference to his resurrection. And if you look with me at verse 20, or John 16, verse 20, verily, verily, I say unto you that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. And ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. Ye shall weep and lament. Ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. Here in the journey of life, due to sin, the disciples entered into the deep valley of pain and woe and anguish. Cruel men were going to crucify their Lord. They were going to put him to death. I trust you've never seen the passion of Christ. I have no desire to. I wouldn't recommend it. I wouldn't advocate it. But in our mind, I've tried to imagine what brutality and what barbarity was meted out to Christ in the horrible death of crucifixion. And I have no doubt that to witness that as the disciples did, it would have filled their hearts and minds with immense sorrow. They have murdered our Lord, they have put him to death. And you think of the impact of the physical sufferings of Christ and the sorrow that it brought into the hearts and minds of the disciples. He says, ye shall be sorrowful. That means filled with sorrow. And Christ, remember, is the man of sorrows. Isaiah 53, he is acquainted with grief. He says, if we use the words of Lamentations, one and twelve, is it not unto you, all ye that pass by, behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which is done unto me, forwith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. Not only the sorrow of saints, but but think of the sorrow of the Saviour. You, you you think of him in Gethsemane, when he prayed, and the Bible tells us he sweated, as it were, great drops of blood. You think of the sorrow of Christ in Gabbatha, the judgment hall where he's unjustly tried, where he's beaten, where he's accused, where he's scourged, where they plait the crown of thorns and crush it onto his lovely brow, and then come from there to the sorrow of Golgotha. And there they put him to death, that horrible death of crucifixion. And he's saying to them at that hour, The world will rejoice, but ye shall be sorrowful. You'll see my sorrow. Because remember, he's the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And the Lord Jesus is saying, but after that, your sorrow will be turned into joy. You see, what's he doing? He's preparing his disciples for the overwhelming sorrows of human life. These next few hours, his arrest, his unjust trial, the beating, the mockery, the scourging, the putting to death, the wee world was going to come crashing down. Their hopes and dreams would be shattered. The promised Messiah. Oh, oh, he's now dead. And how often is that not a picture of life? Your wee hopes and dreams have been shattered. Your wee world has come crashing down. What do you hang your hopes on tonight? Alexander White said this. We often hang heavy weights in the thinnest of wires. Do we not hang our hopes in fragile things, uncertain things, transitory things? We hang our hopes in health. We hang our hopes in wealth. We hang our hopes in family. We hang our hopes in a few good mates. We hang our hopes in our homes. But that's not the real and the proper foundation for hanging our hopes on, Because that's not the real foundation for lasting joy. It's totally inadequate. Jesus said, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. In a little while you shall see me. And what was that seeing of Christ the second time? It was the doctrine of the resurrection. One for his death. In a little while you'll not see me. But in another little while you will see me. It's the doctrine of the resurrection. And you see, we will have sorrows in this fallen world. And when our loved ones are taken and death comes unexpected and we're plunged into a state of grief and sorrow and and the sting of grief comes, what will you do? Could I remind you to expect bereavement? And when death takes place, there'll be a range of emotions. One of those emotions is numbness. That's a common feeling. In the early stages, there's almost like denial and disbelief and confusion, shock, sadness, anger, guilt, and despair. We may not even be prepared for the intense duration of these emotions. Your mood can change. All of a sudden, you're happy and joyful, and then the next, you're downcast and you're depressed. But that's all normal, that's all healthy. There's nothing unscriptural. There's nothing um, unspiritual about feeling sorrow. Why? Because Jesus was the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Another thing we should do when we experience bereavement is have time out for ourselves. You'll never stop missing your loved one, you will find it hard to accept. A major loss has come. And that grieving outward is an expression of that loss. And when you grieve, you'll experience physical difficulty. You'll experience grief psychologically. Do you know the experts? They, they talk about four stages of grief. Accepting loss as real. Two, experiencing the pain of grief. Three, adjusting to life without your loved one putting energy into a, a new life or, or, or something new uh, to maximize their memory. But I've added a fifth, and it's this. The grief of God's people is different from the world. You, you see over there in um, 1 Thessalonians, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13, uh, Paul says this, but I would not have you be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which, is, which are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. Do not sorrow like those who have no hope. Remember the hope in Christ. Remember the hope of the gospel. It's not ungodly to grieve. But in these stages of grief, let's remember the grief of God's people as different from the world. Let me tell you this little story. Campbell Morgan, Welsh preacher, Congregational Church, When he was 30, there was the loss of a little daughter in the family. His wife was heartbroken, and so was he. Forty years later, he's preaching um, on the subject of Christ raising Jairus' daughter. He mentioned the loss of his little girl. Despite prayer, the little girl wasn't healed. And he said this. She has been with him in his heart and mind for all these 40 years. And he said, as we measure time here, I have missed her every day and what has sustained me these 40 years only believe the strength of my redeemer the security of his resurrection the sweetness of reunion to come i have believed in that he wrote in his diary six months after the little girl died he was 31 at the time Psalm 23, verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And then he wrote after that verse, There are no accidents with him. We are all under the Father's government. He felt the strength of that loss every day for 40 years. And yet he also felt and knew the sustaining grace of God as he believed in the Redeemer, the resurrection, and the day of reunion. You see, godly men are not immune from sorrow. The Lord Jesus was not immune from sorrow. That's why they called him the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And you need to fill your mind with who Christ is and what he's done. His resurrection, his return, the restoration of all things, a new heaven and a new earth. There's the sorrow of the word of God. But there's also the sorrow of the world. A sorrow because of sin. A sorrow that is worldly. How many people are too worldly to repent? I heard about a young woman, she was troubled about her sin and salvation, she was troubled about her soul, she wanted to be saved, she was 18, she was attending a gospel mission and one particular night midweek she was talking to the preacher and he said about coming on Friday night, mentioned the young people and those that were taking part and she said well she would think about it but she wanted to go to a particular dance and she talked to that preacher about getting saved and Yet she mentioned, oh, but I want to go to the dance on the Friday night. Sure, like I'm only 18, and surely God wouldn't cut me off. He, he warned her about uh, putting off the day of salvation. He, he stressed to her, behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Today, if he will hear his voice, harden not, your hearty. He says, boast not thyself of tomorrow. No man knoweth what a day may bring forth. But no matter what he said, she decided Friday night, I, I'm going to the dance. She was a beautiful young lady carefree she danced the night away she had a good time but eventually she left the dance floor she felt unwell there was distress she was thinking somebody spiked my drink did i take some pill that somebody's given me that wasn't supposed to and she had it for the porch she felt sick and she thought if she got a breath of fresh air and her friends as she headed to the door heard a crash there was a clatter she fell in to the broom cupboard A number of buckets, a bucket of water was spilled. And as she fell into that bucket, she took a massive heart attack. You think of her last words to the preacher. Surely God would not cut me off. And yet at 18, having spoke to the preacher about her sin, about her soul, about getting saved, while there was sorrow in her heart for her lifestyle, it wasn't a sorrow unto repentance, unto life. Listen to the word of God over there in Second Corinthians chapter 7 and in the verse 9. We read these words written under the pen of the apostle Paul by the Holy Spirit. And I rejoice not that ye were made sorry, but the sorrow to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a goodly manner that ye might receive damage by us nothing sorrow to repentance there's the sorrow of the sinner i want to move on very quickly the root of sorrow has been removed not only the reality of sorrow but the root of sorrow has been removed where does sorrow stem from well obvious isn't it stems from death death comes we grieve we sorrow But in heaven there's no more death. We've preached in that. You can listen to the sermon. It stems from disappointment. Something you believe is going to happen. Something you believe even to be the will of God. You've prayed about it. You believe in your heart it's going to happen. And then it doesn't work out. And you're you're, you're disappointed. You you experience sorrow. What about stemming from disillusionment? When something doesn't work out, you can become bitter. And you can become angry. And you can turn against God. Not turn to him. You, you can turn against Jesus Christ, and, and many people do that. Here's John 16, and these disciples were confused. Why? Because they didn't believe that Jesus Christ was the promised Messiah. They, they, they didn't think that Jesus Christ would come as promised Messiah to bleed and to die in the tree. Um, in a little while, you will not see me. You see, they believed in a glorious promised Messiah, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, rid the land of Israel of the Romans. But they didn't understand about a suffering Messiah. They hadn't read their Bible. Isaiah 53, verse 5 says, He was wounded for our transgressions, He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. Who is the He? Who is the His? Ask the rabbi, they'll tell you it's the land of Israel. But it's not, it's a reference to a person. It's the reference to Christ, but the disciples didn't understand that, and that's why they became so disillusioned and dispirited. It stems from their poverty. We're living in a fallen world. The whole of creation, you're well aware, groans at this minute in time, waiting the return of Christ. Over there in Romans chapter eight and verse twenty, and in twenty-two. Um, We read these words, For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who have subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together, until now. The whole of creation is groaning and straining, awaiting for the redemption of the body, awaiting for the return of Christ, awaiting for the day of resurrection. You and I still live in a fallen world. We're subject to death, disease, disaster, drought. We're subject to dearth. And because we're subject to this, we can become sorrowful. Here's the root. Here's the the stem that that brings and breeds this sorrow. And yet the root of sorrow in heaven is removed. It also stems from despair. When we see evil triumph, wicked man prosper, wicked being elevated in positions of power, I've seen the wicked uh, in great power spreading himself like a green bay tree, the psalmist said. When the ungodly prevails and the righteous suffer, the righteous experience sorrow. They're sad in their heart. But listen to me carefully. One day, all of these roots, all of these things that cause sorrow the stem of death and disappointment and disillusionment, they'd be all gone. Jesus said, what I do now, you know not, but you shall know hereafter. There's a mystery here, but one day it'll all be revealed. Every question will be answered. Every secret will be uncovered, and you'll know the reason why. And one day we'll not be living in a fallen world, we'll be living with Christ, which is far better in a new heaven than a new earth. And one final thing, the results of the Saviour, has been revealed. that We were singing there deliberately, a wonderful Savior is Jesus my Lord. A wonderful Savior to me. What kind of Savior is he as we finish? You see, he's a sensitive Savior. Do you know that the Bible says he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? Isaiah 53 verse 3. The Bible tells us that a bruised reed and a smoking flax he will not quench. Aren't we amazed that he bears with us? You see, we're like sheep. We're prone to wander. And yet the Bible calls us his own sheep. And we're so slow to learn and understand. And yet he graciously and patiently bears with us as the good shepherd. And as sheep we're wayward, And as sheep we're we're, we're, we're weak. As we said this morning. But also we're worth. Something to Christ When you read the gospels How he took the time and time again To explain and teach his disciples That's what he was doing in John 16 In the upper room in the eve of the crucifixion He told them you're going to experience A short season of sorrow But he's not cold toward them He's not being mechanical He's not dealing them with, in a the clinical fashion Like as the father pitied the children So the Lord pitied them That fear him You see he's a shepherd's heart He's a father's heart. He's a leader's heart. A sensitive Savior. He's also the suffering Savior. The Bible says, For the joy that was set before him endured the cross. You think again of his immense sufferings. Gethsemane, Gabbatha, Golgotha. Aren't you glad tonight we rest in the doctrine of the blood atonement of Christ? And rest in the doctrine of the great resurrection of Christ? Imagine if Christ be not risen. Isn't, wasn't that Paul's argument, 1 Corinthians 15, 17? But he is risen. He has conquered death, hailed the grave, the devil, and sin. The suffering Savior is the sovereign Savior. Remember he said to his disciples as we finish, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. How is that possible? How can a sorrowing man smile Even in the face of trial and trouble Let me suggest this The glory of the tree Galatians 6 and 14 The cross of Christ That's how to turn sorrow into joy You see through the cross of Christ And the power of God And the new birth Fearless men were turned into faithful men Broken men were turned into bold men Confused men were turned into confessional men and they confess Christ. What about the glory of the tomb? Death has come, but death has been conquered. You see, we've got to see death from an eternal perspective. We've got to think of what the Lord is doing. Not not, not not from our viewpoint, but from his viewpoint. Once you bring eternity into view, then our light affliction works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Because what is it? It's so little in comparison to the world to come. Think of the glory of the throne room. Haven't we a mediator on the throne now? Isn't the slain lamb in the midst of the throne? Seated with the father? And he prays for us on his merits, not ours. And I'll tell you one final thing, our time is gone. He's an all-sufficient saviour. The Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians in chapter 1 and in the first four, who comforteth us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. He's a, a sufficient Savior. And I tell you tonight, He loves you. I tell you tonight, He died for you. I tell you tonight, he calls out to you. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. He wants you to be saved. Do you want to be saved? Have you a desire? Are you like that young girl? You know about your sin. You know you've got a soul. You know you need to be saved. And you, 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 you would love to come to Christ. You'd love to be saved. And have, why not come? Come tonight. Come now. Even where you sit. As we stand to sing this final hymn, you could call out, Lord, save me, I perish. And I can assure you this, whosoever shall call in the name of the Lord shall be saved. There was a man on a mission in Drumbo. There was, fo- sat at the front. And he went out one Friday evening and he stood at the car and I could hear the wife nudging him, go and talk to the preacher. And he's a bit shy. But he came back in, and I stand at the door, and I said, can I help you? And he says, I just want to tell you something. What is it? I didn't know the man's name. And he said, I've called on the Lord to save me tonight, as we're singing that closing hymn. And Ray Malcolmson's now in heaven, because there was a time and a day when he called on the Lord. He was given that grace to call. It was the Holy Spirit at work. It wasn't his ability and power. It was by the power of the Spirit. And if the Spirit has a desire in your heart to be saved, then you come to Christ tonight.